0: Lilias Trotter, Amy Carmichael, Catherine Cumming, and I wanted to tell you just a little bit about the woman that I'm sure had the most, in, most important influence in my life, and that was my mother. My mother died in 1987, and at her funeral, each of us six children gave a two or three minute talk on some aspect of mother's character or personality. And we took took this in chronological order. I happen to be number two. And my oldest brother, Phil, spoke about her availability. He said, Mother was always there. And we all are very grateful for that. Now, of course, we never thought about it as being anything. She was just our mother, and that's what mothers are supposed to be, isn't it? Available. And she was always there when we came home from school. It wasn't that we wanted to sit down at her feet and share. We didn't have that word share back when I was growing up. wasn't in our vocabularies at all. And we did very little of that kind of thing in our home. When we came in the door, all we did was call out and say, Mother, I'm home, and she would say good or hello, or she might come down the stairs, but very often all we heard was just her voice, and we knew that she was there. And down went the books into the hall and out the back door we went to play kick the can or whatever. But the availability of mothers is something that has fallen on hard times. And it is to the loss of all of us, I think, that mothers very often don't want to be available. And many who really do want to be, can't be. And so, I always want to do everything that I can possibly do to encourage those mothers who understand what God's order is and those who not only understand, but are able to stay home and take care of their children. Some of you, um, I would, don't suppose there'd be very many working mothers here today, because you'd be working, wouldn't you? In case you're a working mother who was able to get this day off, I would encourage you to remember that if this is a necessity, either from an economic point of view or because your husband is making you work, you can trust God with your children. On the other hand, I also want to encourage you, if it is not an economic necessity, or even if you think it is, to ask God if he might have a different answer. I have files bulging with letters from women who had really never thought about the possibility of staying home because it didn't look as though it existed. And when they prayed and said, Lord, I really hadn't given much thought to Titus 2, 3 to 5, maybe you do want me to stay home, but I don't see how I could do it, show me. And God has shown them some very remarkable answers. I have story after story after story of that kind of answer. So let me encourage you to think about that if you're in that category. If your husband is insisting, Let me tell you the story of one woman who begged and pleaded with her husband to let her stay home, and he said, no way, we can't make it. And so when he went away on a business trip for three days, she set herself to fast and pray for those three days that God would change her husband's mind. And when her husband came home, he said to her, honey, he said, you know, I've been thinking on this trip, and we have got to find a way for you to stay home. I think we should try to sell the house. And she said within one week, they not only sold the house, but they found another house with exactly the same square footage for one half the price. And out of that, of course, she was able to stay home. Well, this is one illustration of a spiritual principle. God is sovereign. He's got the whole world in his hands. There is nothing too difficult for him. And prayer changes all kinds of things, and prayer changes all kinds of people. The world doesn't dream of what prayer does. And so just be encouraged and think about that. Well, back to my mother. She was available. I talked about her femininity. She taught, she taught us by example, not by word that I can ever remember, but she set an example of femininity. She was always dressed, combed, and in her right mind at breakfast. <laughs> Never once did my mother come to breakfast with her hair down or with a housecoat on. Now, she had six children. We never had breakfast late. I would not want to tell you that our house was absolutely perfect, but as far as I can remember, it was. I mean, there was never a dirty bathroom. There was never a late meal. And when we get together, we six kids, we try to remember, we scratch our heads in vain to think of ever hearing our mother or father raise his or her voice in disciplining us children. We cannot remember ever hearing an argument between our parents, and I've heard that any marriage in which you don't disagree is got to be a bad marriage. Well, I'm sorry, but that simply wasn't the case in our home. And I'm sure that one of the primary explanations of what this home was is that my father got up every morning between 4.30 and 5 to pray. And he spent several hours on his knees with his Bible and with his prayer lists. And then after breakfast, he took us all into the living room where we sang a hymn, and then he read the Bible, and we all knelt while he led us in prayer, and then we joined in saying the Lord's Prayer. Every evening after supper, he prayed and read the Bible again at the dinner table, and before we went to bed, we were tucked in by one or the other of our parents and prayed for. So we were prayed with and for at least four times a day. Women who make a difference are women who live with God. My mother didn't get up at 4.30 or 5, but she did get up early enough to see to it that we were all up, and she got breakfast for us, and then after the thundering herd had left for school, then she, she had her quiet time, and I still have her little quiet time notebook with all sorts of wonderful little tidbits and it's from that notebook that I got the maxim that I have given so many times on my radio program and sometimes in my books, I don't know how many books it occurs in, but those simple words, do the next thing. And if anything has been a liberating and saving word in my own life, it is just those simple words, do the next thing. When you're just frantic and despairing or perhaps grieving, Just get up and do the next thing. And when Jim was killed, not only was there the consciousness that God's presence would be with me, and the awareness that I had something to do, which was to accept what had happened, that I couldn't change, but I had a lot of work to do. Loads of work. I was on a jungle missionary station alone. My husband Jim and I had been working together, and now I was going to try to do everything that he had done as well as everything that I had done, plus taking care of my baby and teaching a literacy class and doing medical work and delivering babies and all the rest of it. And it was just one thing at a time, doing the next thing. And it is just amazing how God does help you. Instead of just collapsing in a paralysis of despair and helplessness and bewilderment, thinking, I can't do all this. It's amazing what happens when you just do the next thing, whatever it might be. Write the note, wash the dishes, make a bed, comfort somebody else. So I wonder if you've been thinking today about what kind of a difference you expect Jesus to make in your life and what kind of a difference you would like to make in your home, in the people you live with in your workplace, in your church, in your neighborhood. I don't know what God has been saying to you, and I don't need to know. I just pray that he will speak his word to your heart and that you will then rise up and obey. And he only gives you one thing to do at a time. Remember Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Now That does not mean plan the, don't plan the grocery list for tomorrow. Planning the grocery list is today's work, isn't it? If you're going to the grocery store tomorrow. And whatever is necessary to do today in order to plan for tomorrow, I don't think that's what Jesus is forbidding. He is forbidding that we take on the worries of tomorrow and the burdens of tomorrow, because the burdens of today are sufficient. Sufficient unto the day, Jesus said, is the evil thereof. So that's all I wanted to say by way of going back over what I have tried to say to you, and now I want to talk to you about The Unseen Company. And that's my third title. first title was Receptacles of Power. The second one was Chariots of God. And now The Unseen Company. Is there anybody here that belongs to a church where the congregation rises and repeats a creed? May I see your hands? You're not Southern Baptists, I guess. But many of you undoubtedly do know the Apostles' Creed, and there are many other creeds in the Church. And most of them include something like this, I believe in the communion of saints. And I wonder if you've ever thought about that, and if you do believe in the communion of saints. The Catholic Church generally regards only special people as saints, they don't use it in the broad, general sense that the Scripture uses it, but I do believe that everyone who is a member of the family of God is properly designated a saint. But we don't act like it, and we need to learn more and more what sainthood is about. But when I think of the communion of saints, I don't just think of the people that I know living today who are saints, but I think of my mother, and I think of Lilia Strotter and Amy Carmichael. And Catherine Cumming and Hannah Woodall Smith, not to mention the Apostle Paul and the saints and martyrs. And I use an ancient prayer very often called the Te Deum. Some of you are perhaps familiar with that. And let me see if I can find it in my notebook here, just in case I forget some of it. I love this phrase. Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. The noble army of martyrs praise thee. The holy church throughout all the world doth acknowledge thee. And to me it's a thrilling thing when I'm on my knees praying all by myself in my little study, to realize that there is not one minute of one hour of one day when this is not happening. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee, the goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee, the noble army of martyrs praise thee. And we know that angels and archangels are up there saying, holy, 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 and the elders are casting their crowns before him. And the prayer also says, All the earth doth worship thee. And it happens that where we live, we have a tremendous view of the ocean. And I think of the tides praising him and the winds praising him and the pine trees praising him and the lobsters and the clams and everything that hath breath and everything that doesn't have breath is in some way praising God. And the only beings that he ever created that have been disobedient as opposed to the tides, which are perfectly obedient, and the clams, which are perfectly obedient, are us human beings. Also, we could say the, the spirits who became evil spirits and had to be cast down out of heaven. But this ancient prayer says, We praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, the Father Everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. To thee cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabbath. And you know what this prayer does for me? We are so terribly self centered and so very nearsighted in our vision and so preoccupied with our own little tiny petty daily concerns that sometimes we need help to lift our sights, broaden our vision, and realize what this operation called prayer is that's going on here. And remember that I am just one voice in this magnificent choir of angels and archangels and saints and prophets and apostles and martyrs not to mention the Holy Church throughout all the world, so that when I'm getting up in the morning, other people are going to bed at night and saying their prayers, and there are always people throughout the whole earth. And I love that old hymn. The day thou gavest, Lord, hath, has ended. The darkness falls at thy behest. To thee our morning prayer ascended. Thy praise shall sanctify our rest. We thank thee that thy church, unsleeping while earth rolls onward into light, Through all the world, her watch is keeping and rests not now, by day or night. What a comfort! What an encouragement! What a cheer! No matter how awful things might be in my own little tiny world, throughout all the earth, the Church, her watch is keeping and rests not now, by day or night. So there is part of the company of Saints, the unseen company, those people overseas that I can't see but then there's all that glorious invisible company of saints in heaven so the communion of saints to me means my fellowship with all these people these countless millions who are constantly praising God well I want to read to you another quotation from an old writer this is Edmund Sears In fact, I'd like to read you a poem, also from jones Very Near you in sympathy the angels stand, The unseen hosts encompass you around, Strong and unconquerable the glorious band, And loud their songs and hymns of victory sound. And near you, though invisible, Are those the good and just of every age and clime, who, while on earth, have fought the selfsame foes and won the fight through faith and love sublime. Let not the hosts of sin inspire a fear, for, lo, far mightier hosts are ever near. And then Edmund Sears has this to say in prose, With every evil overcome and every new likeness of Christ inwardly put on, you are brought more completely within the circle of the great cloud of witnesses, the myriads of angels in full assembly, and the spirits of good men made perfect. Their strength passes mightily into your soul, and their peace is laid brightly within the heart. This is one of the essential elements of our strength when we are supported and buoyed up in doing the divine will. Have you thought about that? Myriads of angels, the Bible says that we are in the company of myriads of angels in full assembly, and the spirits of good men made perfect, their strength passes into our souls and their peace into our hearts. You feel it, you know it, visible or invisible, a mighty host is with you. You are marching with them in countless and serried numbers. One spirit moves the whole, and you know what? that spirit is, and lifts their feet, and they keep step to the same music. Isn't that glorious? Well, to think of people who made a difference, we could go back to that wonderful gallery of heroes of the faith in, in Hebrews 11, and all those familiar names are there. These people who didn't feel good about God— or feel religious, or feel particularly pious, but people who did things. Like Abel, who offered a sacrifice greater than Cain's. Like Enoch, who was carried away to another life. I'm reading from Hebrews 11. Noah, divinely warned about the unseen future, took good heed, and built an ark. Abraham obeyed the call and left home, and settled as an alien in another land. Sarah received strength to conceive when beyond the age of conception. All these persons died in faith, yet they were not in possession of the things promised, but had seen them far ahead and hailed them and confessed themselves no more than strangers or passing travelers on earth. By faith, Abraham, when the test came, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau and spoke of things to come. By faith, Moses preferred to suffer hardship with the people of God rather than to enjoy the transient pleasures of sin. And then the walls of Jericho fell down, and then the author of the Hebrews in verse 32 says, Need I say more? The time is too short for me to tell the stories of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Through faith, they overthrew kingdoms, established justice, saw God's promises fulfilled, They muzzled ravening lions, quenched the fury of fire, escaped death by the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They grew powerful in war. They put foreign armies to rout. Women received back their dead, raised to life. Others, and this is the part you never heard in Sunday school, the part they never gave you any pictures of to take home, Others were tortured to death, disdaining release. Others again had to face jeers and flogging, fetters and prison bars. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. Does that fit your idea? of a sovereign God working everything that happens into a pattern for good. Well, if it doesn't, your God is too small. If God were small enough to be understood, he would never be big enough to be worshipped. All kinds of things in this same chapter, from shutting the mouths of lions, and receiving the dead back to life, to being sawn in two. Now listen to the end of the chapter. These also, one and all, are commemorated for their faith. And yet they did not enter upon the promised inheritance because with us in mind, with us in mind, God had a better plan that only in company with us should they be made perfect. Do you understand that? I don't. I don't understand how in company with us, those people up there are going to be made perfect or are in the process of being made perfect or reach their perfection. It says, but we don't have to understand how we just understand that this is what the Bible says. With us in mind, God had a better plan that only in company with us should they reach perfection. So along with all these names from Abel and Noah and Enoch and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Jacob and Esau and David and Samuel and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and the women in First Baptist Church in Atlanta on Tuesday, October the 1st in 1991, all of us in company together are to reach perfection. And it's, unvo- it's very unfortunate that we have a chapter break in there because so often it- we miss the connection. But chapter 12 begins with the word and, carrying right on from this, only in company with us should they reach their perfection and what of ourselves, he says. With all these witnesses, think of all these unseen witnesses sitting, as it were, in bleachers in heaven, leaning over with bated breath, wondering if we are going to pass the test, wondering if we are going to receive the same kind of strength that they received in their weakness. With all these witnesses to faith around us like a cloud, we must do what? Throw off every encumbrance, every sin to which we cling, and run with resolution the race for which we are entered. Your race is different from mine. My race is different from my mother's. Her race was different from Amy Carmichael's. Amy Carmichael's different from Moses, and yet... And yet, it's the same race, isn't it? The goal is the same and the source is the same. We are to run with resolution the race for which we are entered, our eyes fixed on Jesus, who, one translation says, is the source and the goal of our faith. Back to that poem that God brought to mind when Jim died. So through life, death, through sorrow, and through sinning, Christ shall suffice me for he hath sufficed christ is the end for christ was the beginning christ the beginning for the end is christ the alpha and the omega the source and the goal the pioneer and the perfecter and this translation says jesus on whom faith depends from start to finish jesus who, for the sake of the joy that lay ahead of him, endured the cross. For the sake of the joy, he endured the cross. Jesus calls us or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Every day his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. In our joys... And in our trials, Savior, may we hear thy call, give our hearts to thine obedience, serve, and love thee best of all. I want you to try to think of what it means to live in company with that unseen and invisible throng. Now, I'm sure that some of you are sitting there scratching your heads and thinking, well, Elizabeth's theology is really way off, because in our Church, They tell us that nobody up there can see what's going on down here. And the truth is, we really don't know. And I'm not telling you that they can see everything that's going on down here. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the Bible says here. It just says, with these witnesses to faith around us like a cloud. Now, I can't imagine why the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would be using the metaphor of an arena, and that's exactly what this metaphor is, if they couldn't see anything. And of course, all these witnesses, I mean, they are witnesses, they were witnesses in their day, and they are still witnesses to everybody that reads the Bible. And they are encouraging us just by their testimony, they being dead yet speak, just as Jim Elliot and his four colleagues are still witnesses, although they died in 1956. But that's not all it means. And C.S. Lewis warns us Be very careful never to say what the scripture only means. Don't say it means only this and no more, because the chances are very good that it means far more, infinitely more than we have ever dared to imagine. And you know what I think about heaven? I think a lot about heaven, because I've got two husbands up there, and one of those husbands has a wife up there, too. I think about it a lot. (laughs) But you know what I think about heaven when people ask me, well, what do you think it's going to be like? When, am I going to know my husband? Is my little white dog going to be up there? And I think my little black dog is going to be up there. His name is Macduff, and God knows his name. And the Bible tells me that everything that hath breath is going to join in that song that's spoken of in the Revelation. And everything that hath breath includes my little dog, McDuff. Um, I think it was Harry Ironside, the pastor Moody Church who was approached by a little old lady who said that her little dog had just died and she said oh pastor Ironside she said I don't even want to think about heaven if you don't think that my little dog is going to be up there is my little white dog going to be in heaven when I get there and he said madam he put his arm around her and he said madam if when you get to heaven you want to see your little white dog I can assure you your little white dog will be there and what I was going to tell you what do I think about heaven I think and this is Elizabeth Elliot thinking, not the inspired word of God, but I think that it is going to be so marvelous and so infinitely and unspeakably beyond my wildest imaginations, and I am a woman of vivid and wild imaginations, that God couldn't give us more hints than he's given us because we wouldn't have been able to keep our minds on our work. We would have been so heavenly, we would have been of no earthly use. And parenthetically, is that worse than being so earthly that you're of no heavenly use? I don't know. I don't think it's worse. So, think about this invisible company, of which you and I are a very real part and whose obedience here on earth is a matter of their interest and, I believe, their prayers. Several times people have said to me, my grandmother died and I miss her prayers. And I think, what would ever make you think that your grandmother is not praying for you anymore? I cannot imagine that she would be less able to help by her prayers in heaven than she would be on earth. Now, you think about that one. Maybe I'm giving you all kinds of heresies here, but (laughs) does it make sense that the, the saints who are now perfected and living in constant and perfect harmony and company with Christ would be less able to help me on my journey than my mother was able when she helped me by her prayers and by her counsel here on earth? I cannot imagine that. So I fully expect that there are a whole lot of people praying for me in heaven. And I need your prayers, too. Don't imagine for a moment that I don't need your prayers. But he says we must throw off every encumbrance. Now, what are these encumbrances? If we're going to run this race for which we are entered, we've got to throw off the encumbrances. I don't know what is encumbering your life. Most of us need to take inventory over and over again. If you have to take inventory... Of your, your clothes and your grocery list, and you need to get rid of the junk in the closet and in the garage and in the trunk of the car every now and then, we certainly ought to be taking spiritual inventory of the things and the activities and the clutter in our lives. I'm a great believer in getting rid of things that we haven't used for a year. Hudson Taylor taught me this. Even though I wasn't married to him, I did (laughs) learn quite a few things from reading his biography. And one of the things that I learned there was that he went through everything he owned every year, and whatever he found that he had not used during the past year, he gave away or threw away. If you can get along with it without it for the past year, you can get along without it for the next year. And the truth is that the more you accumulate, the less you know you have. So even those things that you put away because you think you might need them sometime, you've already forgotten that they're there, and you're not going to use them when you do need them. You'll go out and buy something else. Do any of you have husbands who go out and buy a new tool? Every time they need a new tool, they don't remember that they've got eight screwdrivers in the drawer in the kitchen. I'm not naming any names here. (laughs) encumbrances, clutter, spiritual clutter, junk food, spiritual junk food, all the books in your house that you know perfectly well you don't ever want to lend to anybody and you know you're never going to read again unless you're saving them for your grandchildren or for somebody that you specifically have in mind. I would say you need to weed out your books all the time. We give a whole box of books away practically at least every month, I would say because books keep pouring in and they have to keep pouring out just as fast. What about the worries that encumber you? Possessions, clutter, guilt. What an encumbrance guilt is. What should you do about it? Take it to the cross. And if you say, oh, well, I've done that, but I still feel guilty, well, Maybe you still are guilty because you're supposed to, to confess or apologize to somebody. But if you've done that and you've confessed and repented to God, then if you still feel guilty, the chances are very good that it's the enemy, the accuser of the brethren that is encumbering you with this weight, leave it at the cross. Take your burdens to the cross and leave them there, says the old hymn. Your past, what about all that baggage? And what about the needless pain that we bear? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we are lugging around. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let us throw off, the writer says in Hebrews 12.1, every encumbrance, every sin to which we cling, And let's face it, we do love some of our sins, and we cling to them. And the footnote here says, or every clinging sin, some of the sins are clinging to you. And another one says, the sin which all too readily distracts us. What is the sin that is distracting you this afternoon? Throw it off. Get rid of it. And run with patience the race for which we are entered, or run with resolution, which means commitment, determination. At my mother's funeral, we sang, For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. And I love this stanza that says, Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might, thou, Lord, their captain, In the well-fought fight, thou in the darkness drear their one true light. Alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long steals on the ear the distant triumph song and hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Alleluia. Have you ever heard the distant triumph song of the saints who surround us as a great cloud of witnesses, the invisible company? Have you been strengthened by it? Are you aware that we are being accompanied, as this writer said? Where's that page? You feel it, you know it, visible or invisible, a mighty host is with you. You are marching with them in countless and serried numbers. They keep step to the same music. You and I have the same captain, the same source, the same goal. We feebly struggle, They in glory shine, says another line. But God wants to give us victory. He wants to teach us to mount into those chariots that surround us at all times, even though we don't see them as chariots. He wants us to be receptacles of grace. Will you heed his call? Will you be a woman who makes a difference? in Atlanta or in the town where you live. Don't look for the results. They're God's business. Never mind the effect that your obedience will have. Stick to your job. Stick to your knitting. Do the thing God is asking you to do. Do it faithfully. Do it gladly. Do it thankfully. And the ripple effects of your obedience are incalculable. I'd like to close with the words of a prayer familiar to many of you, an ancient prayer. I'd like you to close your eyes, and if you can pray these words in honesty, please do. If you cannot pray them in honesty, please don't. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.